1: New Books and History, channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sam Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Sarah Miller-Davenport to discuss her book, Gateway State, Why in the Cultural Transformation of American Empire? Dr. Miller-Davenport looks at different ways Hawaii has been used in American imperial discourses. Dr. Miller-Davenport, welcome to the New Books Network. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to this project.
0: Well, I was uh, doing my PhD at the University of Chicago, where, at least at the time um, we could do whatever we wanted once we, once we started. Um, and so I actually had no idea what I wanted to do my dissertation on when I, uh, began my PhD. Um, and Mark Bradley, uh, who ended up becoming my advisor joined the department. I think it was a year or two after I started. Um, and so I never actually took any classes with him, but I did my orals with him and I did a field on, US and the world. And during the course of my um, studying for my orals, I realized, you know, there wasn't actually very much written on Hawaii. And the stuff that was written on Hawaii seemed quite disconnected from the larger scholarship on American empire. uh, And there was very little written on statehood. Uh, Now, that's not necessarily a great reason to, 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 Write a dissertation, you know, to to choose a topic. Um, Sometimes things are not written about because they're not interesting, but I had a hunch that Hawaii statehood would be interesting um, and started, you know, did some preliminary research, went to the archives in Honolulu at the University of Hawaii um, and the state archives, found some good stuff suggesting that, you know, Hawaii had a lot to say about. you know America's role in decolonization, America's role in Asia during the Cold War—a lot to say about um, you know domestic racial formation—and uh, that's kind of how I began this project. It didn't—it didn't necessarily. I, it was—it was—it wasn't something that I had necessarily been interested in, you know, long term. It was something I kind of came to in the middle of graduate school.
1: So, how much of it's taken from the structure of your dissertation versus how much is new in this in this published book?
0: I would say the structure remained quite similar. Uh, I combined a couple of chapters into one and I added two new chapters, but the chapters, as is in the book are are quite similar to how I was conceptualizing the chapters in the dissertation.
1: Fabulous. Um, what were, you you mentioned obviously you went to University of Honolulu and did research there, but I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about other archival sources you used for this project
0: um, so I used a lot of sources from uh, the National Archives, so a number of state department records, particularly the records of the Peace Corps um, so I mean I would say the my main st- Uh, repositories were at the University of Hawaii, uh, the State Archives of Hawaii, and the National Archives. Um, I also, you know, I think my first archival trip was to the Eisenhower Library, um, where I got a travel grant. That was my first travel grant. Uh, And I didn't find that much there. Um, which surprised me. I thought, you know, Eisenhower was president when Hawaii became a state. Why, you know, he should be more interested in it than 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 turned out he was. Um, I think partly because, you know, like he he fully supported Hawaii statehood, so it wasn't it wasn't really a problem for him. Um, at the same time, it wasn't necessarily something that he was deeply committed to. And the 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 problem with Hawaii statehood. Um, and the reason it took so long to get past those problems were in Congress. Um, the obstacles to Hawaii statehood were in Congress. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, I, I went to a number of different collections, most of which I ended up finding, you know, just a couple of folders that were relevant. Um, so, like, at the Library of Congress, it was, you know, the Michener papers were were helpful. I mean, they formed a, a fairly large part of the second chapter. The John Rooney collection, he was very... Uh, the at he was a congressman from New York at Brooklyn College and he was he was a part of um, the group in Congress that supported the East West Center so I found some East West Center stuff there but yeah I mean a bit you you end up going to quite random places especially as the pro- as the project kind of moves along because you know, the places where you think you might find something, you might not actually find anything. And then you realize, like, you know, this somewhat random person happens to have a number of papers, you know, papers relevant to your project.
1: So in brief, what would you describe as the argument of of Gateway State?
0: So I argue in the book that Hawaii statehood uh, represents represents an attempt by the United States to resolve Hawaii status as a non self-governing territory in the era of decolonization. Um, and it does so not on the basis of the, or the reasons for statehood uh, and the claims made in favor of Hawaii statehood are, are less on the basis of Hawaii's sameness to the rest of the United States, which is traditionally how various territories have become states um, right there. They're the, they're, Social uh, and governmental structures are in line with other American states right and you know the process generally um, in US history has been fairly straightforward in terms of turning territories into states um, in the case of Hawaii statehood it you know it had met the constitutional criteria uh, for statehood you know well before the second World War um, but it had statehood had been denied on the basis of Uh, the fact that Hawaii had a majority Asian population. By 1959, uh, Hawaii, the the Asian population in Hawaii was the main reason given in favor of statehood, right? Not only would this be a symbol to Asia and the rest of the decolonizing world that America practiced what it preached on the issue of self-government, right? But that it was committed to racial egalitarianism as well. After statehood those particular ideas and tropes surrounding Hawaii and its multiracial majority Asian population are then institutionalized in all kinds of ways. Um, Hawaii is turned into a bridge to Asia, um, which is one of the arguments again, given for statehood, Hawaii can serve as our bridge to Asia. Uh, and so you have a number of institutions established in Hawaii, the East West center, the Peace Corps, Peace Corps training center, um, that are used to help um, to, to bring Asia and the United States closer together culturally. Um, at the same time, that has all kinds of uh, sort of broader cultural resonances in the United States. Um, and so various ordinary Americans are also able to participate in, um, in Hawaii in this, kind of using Hawaii as a bridge to Asia. So specifically through the tourism industry, um, as well as, as well as through Hawaii food and fashion. Um, by the end of my book, I talk about the ways in which these kind the, the narrative around Hawaii statehood within Hawaii itself had been, um, was, was being challenged in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, particularly at the at the University of Hawaii, where many of which had been a kind of key institution in establishing Hawaii as bridge to Asia,
1: and that actually leads us very nicely into the subject of your first chapter, which is really about the campaign for statehood and the various discourses around which and in that unfolded. Tell us a little bit more
0: about that. Uh, so the campaign for statehood, uh, you know, goes back originally um, to. The Sugar Act of 1934. Um, So until then, you know, Hawaii had been ruled by a minority white elite um, who had been very happy to uh, maintain, you know, for Hawaii to maintain its territorial status. Um, But the U.S. government imposes uh, quotas on the amount of sugar that can be imported or exported from Hawaii to the United States uh, in 1934. Um, and sugar, of course, is the backbone of Hawaii's economy. Um, so it's at this point that you have elites in Hawaii who start agitating for statehood, right? Because the, the quotas are imposed, are, are the U.S. is able to impose these quotas in Hawaii because it's a territory and not a state. Um, but the campaign in the 1930s doesn't really go anywhere. Um, you have a congressional delegation that comes to Hawaii um, and. They conclude that essentially, you know, the the Japanese population in Hawaii can't be trusted. Um, so, but very shortly after the Second World War, um, and I think this this in part speaks to the very very rapid transformation in um, American attitudes toward Japan after the Second World War. Uh, you have a renewed statehood campaign, um, and 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 this one has you know is much more organized than the one in the 1930s has more institutional support in Hawaii has more congressional support, um, in the rest of the United States. Um, and you know, originally, uh, the, the argument for statehood was made on the basis of its, its legal right to statehood, right? Again, it, they're very kind of minimal requirements for, to turn territories into states. Um, Hawaii met those requirements. It was only fair that it become a state, uh, the main opposition to Hawaii statehood was in, um, was in the segregationist South uh, and both, you know, for reasons of, you know, kind of pure racism, right. Because Hawaii is majority non-white, right. they they can never, you know, Hawaii can't ever be, you know, truly American. Um, but also because of their assumption that two senators from Hawaii would, uh, would vote for civil rights. So this the campaign for statehood gets dragged out over thirteen years. Um, So it's you have it begins the first uh, post World War II legislation is introduced in 1946, and it's not until 1959 um, that that statehood is successful. Um, And again, sort of over the course of those thirteen years, you see a number of things. You see the discourse around statehood changing from kind of Hawaii's legal right to statehood to the ways in which Hawaii as a state would benefit U.S. foreign policy. You also see in that same period, right, more broadly, a kind of pivot toward Asia in U.S. foreign policy, right, which which feeds into the idea, right, that hope that Hawaii as a state will um, will advance American foreign policy in Asia.
1: And then your second chapter, you know, it begins with this this sort of fascinating image of Dr. Martin Luther King and a number of other marchers in Selma all wearing leis. And there's this interesting connection that emerges between Hawaii and the civil rights movement um, in the mainland. Tell us a little bit about that and what it tells about broader discourses in race in Hawaiian society.
0: Um, so it's not it's not a direct connection between statehood and the civil rights movement, um, although they are very much indirectly connected as I, as I attempt to show in that chapter. Um, so as you know, this is obviously coming, you know, the, the links that, that I'm making here are obviously very much informed by Mary Dudziak's work on Cold War civil rights, right. And the ways in which um, both members of the U S government and civil rights activists, you know, argued for civil rights for African-Americans Um on the basis of the fact that, you know, that this was bad for America's global image, right? And the Soviets were using um, in their own propaganda targeting the, the, you know, the decolonizing nations of Asia and Africa. They were, they were pointing to American hypocrisy, um, you know, to claim that it was a beacon for democracy, right? And the fact that they have basically a racial apartheid state at home. Um, arguments for Hawaii statehood are quite, Similar, Um, there's not a ton of evidence that that the Soviets were all that interested in Hawaii specifically, right? But but the arguments made in Congress um, and by other supporters of Hawaii statehood uh, are made on the basis of, you know, this will improve our image in the third world, right? This will counteract Soviet claims of American racism. Um, And so these, you know, civil rights and Hawaii statehood, you know, are are kind of happening in the same moment Um, and, you know, are are also, uh, you know, I think the other thing that, that comes out in that chapter and that comes out in some of the debates around statehood and in some of the discussions outside of Congress around statehood are about the ways in which Hawaii can serve as a kind of racial model for the rest of the United States. Right. And that's something that Martin Luther King talks about when he comes to Hawaii. Um, and something that, you know, in the, in the Selma March in 1965, right. That the Hawaii delegation makes that claim as well, right. Hawaii proves that integration works. Right. So that's, that's the other way in which, um, Hawaii and Hawaii statehood are kind of being, um, sort of inserted into the debates around African-American civil rights, right? That this is both uh, something, you know, similar to the issue of um, segregation, right? The lack of statehood for Hawaii looks bad um, to the rest of the world, right? But there's also this this kind of interesting uh, way in which Hawaii is transformed into a kind of racial utopia, right, that, you know, "Quote unquote," proves integration works, right, and can and and as a kind of land of racial amity that can serve as a model for other Americans. And you have a number of people in the black press as well, right, who are making these claims, right, and kind of painting Hawaii as this as this kind of racial paradise.
1: And Then within Hawaii, how does how does race actually play out? Because there's of course a divergence here between rhetoric and reality.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, Hawaii it doesn't, you know. It, it, <laughs> this is something I I would say I struggled with in the book, um, right? How, how how much, you know, part of it is like, well, how much does it actually matter, right? In terms of, you know, what, what is going on um, in Hawaii? How does that and how does that actually inform the kind of image of Hawaii, right? How much of this is a reality? How much of it isn't? Um, You know, and of course, I think it's a little of both, right? You know, Hawaii doesn't have any miscegenation laws, right? So you do have very, very high rates of intermarriage in Hawaii, right? And that's something that brings all of these, like, Chicago school sociologists out to Hawaii to study intermarriage, right? Um, And so that's – so you do have this kind of demographic reality, right, that's then used as a a way to kind of paint Hawaii as this sort of racial paradise. Um, But, of course, you know, you you also have a lot of, you know, kind of informal – uh, discrimination, right. And, and the plantation system, um, you know, as it was, as it was conceived and, and, and practiced by the white elite in Hawaii, right. They had divided laborers on the basis of their ethnicity, right. So, um, and it's not really until the 1930s that you have, you know, kind of organized labor movement in Hawaii, where, um, where workers are able to overcome these racial barriers that had been established, by the plantation owners, um, and and so you you do have you know you do you do still have division right within within Hawaii within the dif- different ethnic groups in Hawaii you still have um, you know you know whites are still uh, you know the kind of elite class in Hawaii um, and are and are able to. Um, are able to, for instance, in the case of James Michener, right, keep certain neighborhoods white, right, through the same kinds of informal mechanisms of, of segregation that you see in the rest of the United States, right? So it is not this kind of perfect racial utopia, right? But I also think, um, you know, those ideas of Hawaii as racial paradise aren't, you know, they're not, they're not coming from nowhere,
1: So then in your third chapter, um, you you start to delve into this deeply, into this um, idea of Hawaii as gateway to Asia and Hawaii as a sort of diplomatic bridge into Asia. And how is that playing out in the state?
0: Um, So after statehood, right, you have, you know, or even even before before statehood is secured, um, you have various initiatives you know that are either kind of homegrown in Hawaii right or kind of you know supported by members of Congress right or supported by the State Department to to use Hawaii particularly um, as a as a place for educational exchange um, and and not just edu- and both educational exchange in itself in Hawaii at the University of Hawaii um, to bring students from Asia. Um, to Hawaii to study at the University of Hawaii, but also Hawaii is it as what what's called a conditioning center for students coming from Asia uh, to the United States who are going you know to some mainland university right, but they come to Hawaii for a few weeks um, before they go to the mainland right as a kind of introduction to the United States right as a but but without without some of the kind of um, as a way to kind of prepare Asian students for the U.S. in a place that will be, you know, friendlier to them um, kind of racially and culturally before they have to go uh, to, say, you know, the University of Nebraska or whatever, where there are very few Asians. Um, So that's happening already before statehood. You also have um, an institution called the Institute for Pacific Relations, right, which, um, you know, promotes sort of, you know, intellectual exchange conferences, that kind of thing um, between Americans and Asians, right? And that's an interwar institution. Um, And then after statehood, you have, you know, a a much more concerted effort, um, much of it led by uh, Lyndon Johnson um, to use Hawaii, right, as a kind of, uh, as, you know, to expand Hawaii's role as a bridge to Asia, um, and so you have two I, I I talk about two kind of main institutions um, that represent that. So one is the East West Center, which is founded which is founded as a as a kind of graduate school at the University of Hawaii. Um it's now no longer affiliated with the University of Hawaii, although it's on their campus. Um, but it was originally a graduate school within the University of Hawaii to bring mostly Asian students um, to Hawaii uh, to study, you know, a whole range of subjects, although the vast majority of them are uh, kind of, you know, various uh, technical, scientific, um, you know, kind of agriculture related topics. um, Although it's also supposed to be a place for mutual understanding. So you have a lot of American students who are, who are getting their graduate degrees, at the East West center as well. Um, and it's supposed to be a place it's conceived of as a place for cultural mixing, right. Um, between American students and Asian students. Uh, and then you also have the founding of, um, the, this Peace Corps training center, uh, on the big Island, um, in Hilo, which is the main city on the big Island. Um, and that, throughout the 1960s, that's the largest Peace Corps training center in the United States. After the 1960s, the Peace Corps moves to in-country training. But while while it's still doing um, volunteer training in the United States, Hawaii is the largest training center um, and kind of the main conduit for American volunteers going to Asia. Uh, and that again, you know, Hawaii is used as a place that's kind of you know, a mix between the United States and Asia, right? A kind of mix of cultures and a place where, you know, Asians can encounter Americans um, while still, you know, in a sort of famili- relatively familiar kind of Asian-inflected environment. Um, and then for Americans who are training the Peace Corps, a place, again, you know, that's kind of, you know, asian um culturally inflected Asian place or Asian inflected society, right. Where they can learn about Asia before they actually go there. Right. Because it, because Hawaii has, you know, these different Asian immigrant communities that, that Peace Corps volunteers are expected to interact with. So those are the ways in which Hawaii after statehood, um, you know, is uh, is used as this as, or institutionalized as a bridge to Asia.
1: It also seems to play out in some really humorous ways. I, I was just struck reading that chapter by the by the idea of basically setting these these peace corps volunteers down with these agricultural laborers and just sort of expecting them a to just sort of jump into it, but b also that this would somehow teach them about whole other societies as if the whole thing was just completely applicable across the entire globe.
0: Right. So yeah, so this is, you know, um, I also found that <laughs> hilarious when I saw it in the archives, right? There's there's this description of, you know, it's like, first we have, it's like, there's this whole description of, of I think it's like a, a, a weekend in the YPO Valley. There, so they went to, they were sent to this YPO Valley, that's very remote valley on the Big Island um, for a few weeks. And it was like, I think on Saturday nights, they had a luau pig. And then like, they, you know, then the next day, they were supposed to they were they were taken by bus or something, and then just like dropped off near these, you know, like um, these plantation work, you know, immigrant plantation worker communities. And they were supposed to they were supposed to, I think they were actually supposed to to convince someone to like let them stay <laughs> with them overnight. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, so, you know, they're just kind of like dropped in these, you know, like kind of Filipino plantation, you know, community and they're, and they're supposed to make friends, right? You know, which is basically what they're supposed to do in the Peace Corps. Um, so it is apt in a way, right? But, but also, you know, does, does strike readers now, I think is, as somewhat um, humorous. Um
1: So then in your fourth chapter, you pick up on a lot of the threads that um, carry over from the second chapter, you know, this idea of Hawaii as this um, sort of multiracial, accommodating, prejudice-free society, and you examine the ways in which um, tourism in the state starts to commodify that. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: I think, you know, so a lot of the literature on tourism in Hawaii, I think, you know, focuses on the idea of Hawaii as a kind of Polynesian paradise, which was um, which was what I was expecting when I when I went into this, right? But what I found was actually, there's, you know, there's the, the idea of Hawaii as a Polynesian paradise never goes away, um, but you see just as much emphasis, if not more on the idea of Hawaii as kind of, you know, a place where you can tour the Orient. You know, that's what one of the, um, one of these tourism ads claims, right? You can see, you can you can visit Japan. You can visit Korea. You can visit Micronesia, right? So, um, it's it's a way for Americans to you know see Asia without leaving the United States, and also to experience this you know racially harmonious society, right? So, um, so the tourism industry in Hawaii at this time is both kind of commodifying, you know, again this kind of image of Hawaii as as a bridge to Asia or a kind of little Asia in the United States, and also the idea of Hawaii as this kind of mixed multiracial paradise. Um, And, you know, and, 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 and of course, tourism uh, very quickly after statehood outpaces um, even the, you know, it outpaces the plantation industry, it outpaces the military, right. As the main driver of Hawaii's economy, right. So these um, tourism, is incredibly important right you know and, and incredibly dominant um in in you know in hawaii society to this day right so um you know ho- people in hawaii are also expected to kind of fulfill this idea right of hawaii as a as a kind of racially harmonious place right you know you know and to and to kind of perform that for visitors from the united states
1: you describe that spirit as um aloha spirit, which uh, it struck me um, reading it. It's it's sort of initial pitch by that by this religious figure is almost sort of an inversion of the melting pot. Everybody comes to Hawaii, and in certain aspects survive, but it all sort of blends together. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, and so the the aloha spirit, well, it's all it's all over all of the the tourism literature, um, and it's it's you know. I I talk about in the chapter right this this reverend he's he's Hawaiian um Reverend Abraham Akaka who was actually friends with Martin Luther King and I tried desperately to to see if I could um get into the archives um at the Martin Luther King Library I was unsuccessful um to see if they had any correspondence but in any case um yeah he talks about uh Actually, it's in it's in like the United Airlines magazine. So it probably started off as a sermon, right? But he talks about you know the Aloha spirit, right? It begins with the Native Hawaiians, right, because they um, they have you know a, a, a kind of welcoming culture, right, and they and they serve as hosts, right, to these white settlers, right, who come. In the 18th century, in the 19th century, right, um, and then that kind of sets the tone for all of the other migrants who come to Hawaii, right. Every all these different migrant groups uh, come to Hawaii over the course of the 19th and 20th century, right, and they each, you know, they have their own kind of separate cultures that contribute to this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the broader culture of Hawaii, right. But it's all, it's all um, kind of enveloped by the aloha spirit, you know, and the kind of the the welcoming um, the welcoming atmosphere set by the native Hawaiians. Right. And so, uh, you know, big part of the the way in which Hawaii is sold to mainland American tourists in this period, right. Is come to Hawaii and experience the Aloha spirit. Um, and of course this is being done, you know, in the late sixties, right. At a time where, you know, I think a lot of Americans, uh, you know, from, you know, across the political spectrum would say there's probably not a lot of Aloha spirit in the United States. Right. (laughs) Um, so, you know, and, and there's, you don't have too many, you you don't have too many people in Hawaii kind of making that explicit, but I think it's very implicit in the way they're selling Hawaii. Right. Like things in the U S right now are kind of tense racially. Right. But you can come to Hawaii and escape that.
1: Well, and there's also this component of armed forces tourism, which is in the same period the Vietnam War is going on. Suddenly, Vietnam or Hawaii takes on this additional importance. And tell us a little bit about that.
0: Um, yeah, so Hawaii becomes a major center for R and R tourism for military personnel. Uh, I mean, in many ways, what was interesting, right, is you know the the soldiers um, and officers coming to Hawaii for R and R they're not coming to Hawaii to experience Asia, right? Like they've been experiencing Asia. And if they wanted to experience more of Asia, they could have chosen an R&R location in Asia. Um, so their experience is actually very different um, in multiple ways from the tourists who are coming from the rest of the United States, right? Um, and and it's also what, what's interesting about R&R tourism in Hawaii is it's specifically targeted at um, at army personnel with wives and girlfriends, right? It's a place where you can, or, or, or if, um, personnel who want to see their parents, right? So it's a place where you come to have a kind of heteronormative family experience, right? Which again is in stark contrast to the R and R experiences in parts of Asia, right? There, Cause there's a certain number of sites where you can go for R and R. And Hawaii is the kind of family friendly site uh and very much not sold to military personnel as a place as as a kind of bridge to asia right or or it's the bridge to get it's the bridge to get away from asia in the context of military r and you know particularly because all these um the the asian r sites right are known um for uh the you know kind of the as, as a place for sex with Asian women. Um, right. And that, that's, you know, doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as problematic to the army as one might think, right. I think they see it in some ways, right. As a kind of, you know, a necessary form of relaxation, right. But they're also quite concerned about like the spread of venereal disease and stuff, right. So Hawaii is the kind of wholesome alternative to all of that.
1: And then in this fifth chapter, and and I really enjoyed this one, partly just because there's a tiki bar two blocks from my apartment. So I (laughs) spent more time there than I should. Um, But this really has to do with ways that Hawaii is sort of commodified and sold, and especially on gender lines. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: I noticed this while I was researching the tourism chapter, um, that a lot of, you know, that both in the kind of tourism discourse around Hawaii and in a lot of the kind of larger discourse around Hawaii, um, a lot of it's being targeted at women um, and, you know, at white women specifically. Um, And, you know, Hawaii, Hawaii is a site for liberation, for sexual liberation, right. Kind of through, through this kind of embrace of a kind of, of, of racial liberalism, um, you know, or a kind of blurring of racial boundaries, right? That that's that that's a way to uh, achieve other kinds of individual liberation, um, and so I, you know, there. I mean, I I I thought that sort of fashion, in particular, is talked about very explicitly that way, right? The the kinds of fashion from Hawaii that are being sold to mainland women, right, are talked about as, you know, very colorful, right, you know, and, as, you know, that, that that color reflects Hawaii's multi-ethnic society, right, and it's very comfortable, right, and that those two things are kind of being equated in this period, right, that by wearing Hawaii fashion, you will become, like, a cooler, you know, more sophisticated, more racially enlightened, more sexually free woman, Um and then at the same time, you have a lot of, you know, I think the other kind of main way that Americans are consuming Hawaii, outside of Hawaii, right, is through food, right. So of course you you have this proliferation of tiki bars, right, which of course are not necessarily always branded as Hawaii specifically, right. They're kind of generally Polynesian, um, but they're also, you know, they they are, you know, often a kind of um, implicit reference to Hawaii. Um, and the, the food they serve is actually is, is Asian. Um, right. Which I think also speaks to Hawaii as a, as a center for Asian migration. Um, and most of the, most of the cookbooks, um, you know, that are, that are, that are called Hawaiian cookbooks are actually, um, mostly Asian recipes, right? So uh, one of the things I talk about in this chapter is the ways in which, um, Hawaii, again, is kind of used for, you know, particularly through food, right, as a way, as a kind of way into um, sort of, uh, I guess, like assimilating Asian culture into mainstream American culture, right, or as a way to embrace Asian culture, right, through Hawaii and, you know, through and through food, specifically through Asian food, specifically,
1: and in a highly packaged kind of way too. Um, yeah, you, you there, there's one part that talks just about sushi and the way that most people will not end up embracing it. But for those who do, it becomes a craze, right? It, it, it's sort of presenting it as ex, in an exoticized uh, format while also omitting things like poi, which most Americans, there's, there's no poi craze at any point in mainland US society.
0: No, well, and and that's that's yeah, Victor Bergeron who um, the founder of Trader Vicks, right? Which is still, I think they're still around. There was one in Chicago. I know it closed a few years ago, but there was there was there was a Trader Vicks in Chicago when I lived there. Um, right. And I think he says, you know, every some people who embrace sushi become sushi addicts, right? Um and but yeah, it's a very it's a very selective use of food that is somehow associated with hawaii right um and and again a lot of it a lot of the food that you see in these quote-unquote hawaii cookbooks is not it's not native hawaiian um you know so a lot of it has say like pineapples in it right um and pineapples were introduced to hawaii you know quite recently um you know pineapples are not native to hawaii they're native to south america so um you know, and, and so most of the kind of actual, you know, traditional native Hawaiian food doesn't make it into these cookbooks. But I, and I, but I think what's interesting about it is that, you know, that most of the food that's in there is, you know, it's Chinese or Asian or, or Korean or Filipino, right? That's what kind of makes up the bulk of these cookbooks. And that's, you know, that's a big part of how Hawaii is being sold in this period is, is you know, as a multi-ethnic majority Asian place.
1: And then in your sixth chapter, you take a really close look at the development of um, ethnic studies at the University of Hawaii. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: I use uh, the story of ethnic studies at the University of Hawaii as a way to examine the emergence of opposition within Hawaii to the various narratives around Hawaii as a racial paradise and as a bridge to Asia. Um, So you have students at University of Hawaii, who are really inspired by what's going on in California, right, where you you had a lot of student activism demanding uh, the establishment of Black studies, Asian American studies, Chicano studies, etc., right? And they um, very quickly um, uh, join the call for that, right, at their own university. Um, And what, one of the things that's interesting about this is that actually, at first, the university administration at UH is, you know, very happy uh, to establish ethnic studies, right, in contrast to what, what happened in California, right, where it took quite a lot of militant student activism to get these programs established, right, but... Um, the university administration at UH kind of, you know, sees this as sort of, you know, the fulfillment of, uh, you know, Hawaii's, um, you know, the kind of multicultural society in Hawaii, right? And 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 you know, an expression of um, of Hawaii's embrace of. Ethnic and racial difference. Uh, very quickly, though, tensions emerge. Right. So, um, one of the things that uh, ethnic studies courses do, right, is they they really take a much more critical uh, approach to the history of Hawaii. Right. So they highlight um, the you know racial and economic inequality in Hawaii, the history of white supremacy in Hawaii, the ways in which um, racial and ethnic uh, inequality, you know, continue up till the present day in Hawaii. Um, in particular, they highlight um, how uh, you know the the American settlement, annexation, and annexation of Hawaii affected Native Ameri- uh, Native Hawaiians. Um, so, you know, first they take on a, a much more critical take. Uh, to hawaiian to uh, the history of hawaii right that it stands in contrast to the kind of utopian image of hawaii that's that's emerged over you know the past um you know 10 20 years um, and they also demand a kind of much more radical approach to uh to the pedagogy um of these of these courses right so they you know the the proponents of ethnic studies see this as A way to encourage activism outside of the university, right? And and in fact, many of these courses include a kind of activism component, right? They also are employing, you know, students as teachers, right? So the university, uh, doesn't really like this, right? And, and, you know, they say the program isn't really all that academic, right? It's not serious enough, right? It's too political. Um, and they try to shut it down, um, And there's quite a lot of protest uh, among students, right? And people outside of the university as well, right? Demanding that they not shut it down and make make the program permanent, right? Because it's established at first on a temporary basis, right? Um, And so the activists... Ultimately, win this battle. Although um, I think, to some extent, right, you know, at the expense of, uh, you know, a kind of de-radicalization, right. So, you know, they do have to, and you know, ultimately have to conform to some of these kind of pedagogical demands of the administration, right? And you, you know, and they they, they can't have students as teachers anymore, right? And they can't kind of include activism as per- part of the coursework. Um, so. I choose to end the book with that, right? Um, well, actually, I choose to end the book looking at the uh, Constitutional Convention in Hawaii in 1978, which um, uh, enshrines, you know, sort of new rights for uh, for Native Hawaiians, right? And, I, and, you know, I mean, all books have to end somewhere, right? But um, I chose 1978 as my endpoint, right? Because I kind of see that as, in some ways, the end to uh, this, you know, era in which, you know, Hawaii was celebrated in a kind of unproblematic way as, as a racial paradise. Right. So you have, um, by the 1970s, right. You have a lot more pushback against that idea. Right. And then after 1978, right. Um, into the 1980s, you have the emergence of a Hawaiian sovereignty movement, right. That, you know, not only questions kind of Hawaii's history of, um, colonization, right? And, and, um, and the treatment of Native Hawaiians historically, right, but as saying, you know, in fact, right, statehood didn't solve these problems, right? Statehood was supposed to solve Hawaii's colonial status, right? But sovereignty activists say, in fact, it didn't, right? It only, if, if anything, right, it only kind of um, solidified that colonial status. So that's where I end.
1: Is this book and is this scholarship a critique of multiculturalism?
0: Um, yeah, I would say it is, and I'm glad you brought that up because um, I, sh- I should have talked about this in my uh, discussion of the argument of the book because multiculturalism is pretty central to it. Um, so, and you know, I see Hawaii is really a model for multiculturalism as an and as a place where the ideas around multiculturalism develop and are put into Institutional practice. Uh, so, you know, most of the scholarship on multiculturalism um, tends to identify its emergence, right, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, right, um, where you have racial and ethnic groups who are demanding, um, you know, or who are challenging the kind of traditional assimilationist paradigm for negotiating difference in American society, right, and saying, you know, uh, we deserve to be able to, um, you know, celebrate our own individual uh, cultural traditions, right? And to also have those recognized, right, particularly in kind of secondary and higher education. Um, but I really see, uh, I, I really, I, I kind of start this, uh, this history Earlier um, to the you know looking at the 1950s right and the debates around Hawaii statehood. So I mean of course you have you have critics of assimilationism and the melting pot going back to the early 20th century right. Particularly um, figures like Horace Callan, right who challenges the idea of the melting pot right and 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 you know kind of says that cultural ethnic groups should be able to celebrate their particular traditions. Right. But I think, you know, it's, it's really in the 1950s. Right. And in some ways starting, um, you know, in these debates around Hawaii statehood that you have kind of mainstream liberals who are really embracing and holding up this idea of celebrating difference and recognizing difference and rejecting assimilationism. Um, and, you know, so so by the time, for instance, right, uh, by the time Hawaii becomes a state in 1959, right, the, the main reason given in favor of Hawaii statehood is not about, you know, Hawaii's Americanness, although, you know, no advocate for Hawaii statehood would deny that, right, but it's really about Hawaii's Asian-ness, right, and that, you know, this is what this is, this is why Hawaii should, should become a state, right, because of its Asian um, cultural traditions, right, and this will send a message to the decolonizing world, specifically to people in Asia that we embrace uh, different cultural traditions, right We're not trying to impose American or Western cultural traditions on them. Um, and that's really in many ways, a response to what's going on in the decolonizing world where you have nationalist leaders who are calling not only for an end to colonialism, right. But for an end to Western cultural domination, right. This is something that comes out of the, um, the final communique of the Bandung conference in 1955, right. Where, um, where they say, right, we need to kind of reassert, um, are national cultures, right, and this is a way. This is a kind of nation-building project, right? Um, a kind of re-embrace of of our um, of our cultures. So, so the United States, right? You know, they've they've espoused this anti-colonial rhetoric, right? They want to win friends in the decolonizing world, right? They're sensitive to the fact, right, that um, that nationalists in the third world, right, are are going to reject anything that smacks of colonialism. Um, and so you know the solution or one of the one of the perceived solutions to that right is you know to kind of train americans to kind of perform cultural respect, right? So um, you see that, for instance, in the case of the East-West Center, right? The East-West Center mission is, you know, they, they say, you know, we reject a bland assimilation of difference in favor of a celebration of diversity for mutual good, right? The Peace Corps um, promotes cultural sensitivity training, for volunteers, right, where um, the idea being that, you know, once they go to their assigned countries, right, they will be able to communicate with the people there, right, in, in part by demonstrating that, you know, they're not trying to impose American culture on them, right, and that they, that they respect non-American, non-Western culture. Um, of course, this is all a bit of, uh, of a hedge to some extent, right, because the United States... Does in fact want to impose certain American norms on the decolonizing world, right? Particularly when it comes to, you know, how they organize their economy, right? So, um, so an embrace of communism, right, is a difference they're not willing to accept, right? Um, and they're they're also seeking to, you know, quote unquote modernize countries in the decolonizing world, right? Which, which also requires, you know, um, a certain, uh, kind of modern mindset. Right. Um, so it's certainly, um, a somewhat limited multiculturalism, uh, you know, as enacted, you know, in practice in American foreign policy. Um, you know, I think in a domestic context, right. The emergence of, multiculturalist discourse, right, also um, kind of coincides with, you know, other discussions around sort of how to explain the success or lack of success of different ethnic and racial groups, right? So um, you also have in the same period, right, the emergence of the model minority theory, which scholars like Ellen Wu have talked about to explain, you know, why Asian Americans have been, you know, so successful, right? And that's, you know, sort of inherently a system of measurement where Asian Americans are held as a model, you know, in contrast to, you know, African Americans, right in particular, right um, in the context of Hawaii, you have something similar going on where uh, people of Japanese descent are quite successful, particularly after statehood, right, and are, and are held up as exemplars of of you know economic and social success, right. Whereas other groups, um, you know, for example, Native Hawaiians, right, you know, do not benefit really from statehood, right, and, and end up kind of at the bottom of. Uh, economic league tables divided by ethnicity, right? So, um, so in that sense, yeah, I think, I think my book uh, does seek to kind of unpack and critique multiculturalism.
1: And then, I mean, the other book I was thinking about while I was reading your book was Daniel Amarwar's recent book, How to Hide an Empire, which I think dovetails really nicely with everything you've done here, um, including the fact that the U.S. is very savvy in finding ways to maintain an empire while maintaining anti-colonialist rhetoric. So my question is, was the path to statehood and, and much of what you describe here a way to maintain certain imperialist practices?
0: Um. I would say so although I don't necessarily think that um you know the kind of architects of Hawaii statehood would have seen it that way um but in the sense you know I think the 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 concept of a bridge to Asia right um that bridge you know it can I I it can carry people across it can carry ideas right it can also carry military tanks right so um you know there's it There are some inherent tensions, I think, between America's, you know, more kind of, quote, unquote, benevolent actions, you know, in Asia in this period, and its military interventions in Asia. Um, But at the same time, right, you, you know, you... The same people are advocating often for both of those, right, for cultural intervention and for military intervention, right? So Hawaii is seen as a way um, to kind of maintain American power in Asia, Um you know, and of course, Hawaii is the staging ground for the Vietnam War. Right. So um, and the military is fully, you know, they, they, the military doesn't seem to care that much about statehood, you know, and it, but but they're they're on board with it as long as they can keep their bases in Hawaii. Right. Um, and of course, you know, Hawaii, the defense industry in Hawaii only grows with statehood. Uh, so and, you know, so the military is very happy to To accept statehood, right, Um, and and it's it's a way to Hawaii, um, you know the kind of message that Hawaii statehood is supposedly sends, right, and then the kind of use of Hawaii as this like cultural bridge to Asia, right. I think is also a way to sort of you know to both promote American interests in Asia, right, but to also as also a way to kind of downplay right or distract sometimes from American. Military action in Asia.
1: Interesting. I just want to conclude by asking what you're thinking of working on next.
0: So, um, my next project is takes takes me in a somewhat different direction. So, I'm I'm looking at the reinvention of New York as a global city in the late 20th century. Um, and I realize it sounds very different than the current project. So, I'm going. You know, I'm I'm kind of moving east. Um, I'm or west i don't even know whatever i I'm, I'm 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 moving um to a, you know very th- the opposite end of the united states um but you know i think it, it it's it's similar you know or it draws on some of what i found working on hawaii right doing a kind of local trying or attempting to do a kind of local national and global history right so you know and and you know but hawaii um you know, is conceived of right in the time period that I study right as as a kind of center for global exchange right, um, and New York is too right. You know, and I mean it has been for a while right, but it's very self consciously kind of rebrands itself as you know a center for um, for global encounters right um, in the late twentieth century, um, and so I'm interested. You know, so this is a kind of another another place where I can hopefully do, you know, some kind of, you know, sort of combine local, national and, um, and global history.
1: I'll look forward to hearing more about this project as it continues. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today.
0: Thank you so much.